1: Welcome to The New Books Network.
0: Hello and welcome to The New Books Network. I'm Pierre D'Anse. If we were to believe the news or the hype that accompanies the releases of new consumer technologies, we could understand that virtual reality is a profoundly new experience that may yet redefine our understanding of the real reality that we already occupy. Indeed, such metaphysical approaches seem to be at the core of the multiverses that we have recently been promised. In The Aesthetics of Virtual Reality, Grant Taverner proposes that this account of VR is fundamentally mistaken, suggesting that instead an analysis of VR as a picturing medium and its usage should lead their aesthetic investigation. Grant Tavenner is a senior lecturer in philosophy at Lincoln University in New Zealand. He has published widely on the aesthetics of video games, virtual worlds, digital media and ethics, and the philosophy of technology. And I'm very happy that he joins me now. Welcome to the show, Grant. It's great to be here, um, and great to talk to you. Let's step into the New Books Network multiverse. So, donning on our headsets, I'd like to start by asking you how it is that you came to be interested in. The topic of virtual reality and why its aesthetics has been so urgent and so important for you to explore and i gather that you have been interested in the realm of computer games for for quite some time so it'll be interesting to know how that might have fed into your research
1: well i've been writing about video games for the last uh, maybe 20 years and um, i come out of the um, philosophy of the arts so i treat video games as an art form um, and ask some of the traditional questions that we might ask about art forms um about video games so how do we perceive them um what are their emotional um, resonances for us what are their distinctive forms and modes of aesthetic appreciation and that type of thing and the concern with virtual reality sort of grows quite naturally out of out of that concern because um you know there are now vr video games um it's a new medium for presenting that that form but it goes beyond that as well because, of course, there are other non-video game uses of VR that are particularly interesting. There are scientific uses, mm-hmm. um, increasingly therapeutic uses, and I find this all you know, very interesting. And more basically, um, philosophically, VR is obviously very interesting because it connects with a lot of the traditional yeah. issues that we find in philosophy, such as metaphysics and uh, perception, uh, that style of thing.
0: We'll get to quite a lot of these big questions uh, in the course of a conversation, but I think I'd like you to to start us off relatively gently. And you do that in a book by describing one of your first, if not your first experience of using virtual reality in a game. I think the game might have been Resident Evil. And I thought that was a, a really good way to bring our listeners into thinking about some of the things that questions of virtual reality might bring.
1: Resident Evil as a... a- reasonably traditional video game in which you explore a haunted house you know there's something mysterious going on there and it's dark and there are monsters and and you don't really know what you're going to encounter Mm -hmm. and i've never really found um horror video games all that scary but on the ps4 virtual reality headset um it just it was so scary i couldn't actually play it i had to give up Mm -hmm. and it, it had to do with sort of um feeling vulnerable in the space and one of the things about vr is that things are happening around you It's not just on a screen um, uh, in front of you. And you feel vulnerable for things that might be sort of lurking in the shadows, and you feel hesitant about moving into the space. And, you know, it's just an overwhelming um, impression that you get. And it seems to sort of touch on what's regarded as the special realism of VR, that it seems real in a way that other media don't, in Mm. some sense. And it gives this sort of deep emotional connection to what's happening in the world.
0: Well, let's dwell a little bit on this special sense of reality. Early today I came across an advert from the 1990s for the Little Toys, which were at the time built as the first ever virtual reality toy. And of course there's clearly quite a lot of scope between that definition of virtuality and the kind of idea we get when we think about the dizzying heights and the possibilities of the metaverse.
1: So I think that term you know virtual itself is so prevalent these days that it's ambiguous you know thoroughly ambiguous about what it's referring to and it's used as sort of a, a buzzword and we have virtual meetings and virtual teaching and all this sort of stuff and it seems like sometimes it's a, just a um, you know a replacement for computer or online or networked um, whereas uh, I try to use it in a more specific sense um, talking about virtual reality headsets um, which I think are a mode of Picturing, you know, um, of feeling yourself in, a, in another location. And I discussed that technology early on in the book. But I agree that um, virtual is just a, a very widely used term. Um, and it, virtually, virtual reality headsets go back to at least the 1980s, I guess, even the 1970s, the, the prospect that there could be this thing. But um, it's really only come into sort of commercial fruition in the last uh, 10 years, I'd say. And the reason it's so popular now, of course, is because companies like Facebook and PlayStation are producing viable, viable headsets. Um, so it's a reasonably modern development, but um, I argue in the book actually that it goes much, much further back um, and that virtuality is, is just basically a picturing technology. And that attempts to sort of virtualize experience can be seen in um, Renaissance art in particular. Um, in the use of uh, linear perspective, the people who created that, such as Alberti and Brunelleschi, they thought they were trying to, um, you know, bring about a way to experience pictures as one would experience the world. Uh, they thought they were a technological development that we might th- see as sort of as virtual these days.
0: Well, this—that's a strand in the book that I found particularly fascinating um, because you go into history of art in a way that I I would not have necessarily expected in this book, and. You use that to make a very crucial point about virtual reality as we commonly understand it now, as you just said, not necessarily being the invention it purports to be. But I think to do that, it would be be good to go through some of the steps of of the argument in, in the book. And I have to say I, I was overwhelmed and I really appreciated the amount of technical work that you did in the book and technical both in a sense of discussing technology but also through going through a variety of arguments that might be imposed on a reading of virtual reality
1: so i I think um the predominant way in which virtual reality has been tackled recently and especially by philosophers is in a metaphysical way you know asking Mm. about the reality of virtual worlds or virtual objects or whether it's valuable to be engaged in virtual worlds and objects and what exactly we're perceiving And, and those style of questions. And I think that these, um, this is a fundamentally wrong approach because it ignores what virtual reality is in itself mm. as, a, as a medium. And it tends to treat virtual reality as being a prop to discuss older philosophical questions such as you know, yeah. Cartesian fictions and um, the reality of the external world idealism and those style of things. And what is lost in that is what virtual reality as a medium is actually doing. And so I wanted to really um, get into the technical details of what is going on when we perceive a virtual reality uh, world through a headset. And I think that once we have that technical understanding, then it undermines a lot of those other metaphysical approaches. Um, it shows that they're you know, not really getting to the heart of what virtual reality is doing. Mm. Um, and it obscures a lot of other interesting philosophical stuff that we might talk about.
0: So, well, let's get into it. Let's talk about the virtual medium. First, I guess we have to figure out what a medium is, and that should be relatively straightforward. But then we might want to discuss what virtuality is. And that already is where a lot of disagreements, I think, I think, start emerging.
1: Yeah, so in, in I think, the second chapter, I discuss those two concepts, virtuality and media, and to try and work out individually what they are. You know, I'm an analytic philosopher, so I tend to mm. analyze things into their component parts and it's not such a, um, a simple question to understand what a medium is and i think often it's been sort of glossed over uh, what a medium is and what it means in terms of virtual media um, or artistic media so I, I have a discussion there and i bring out various senses and what medium means and i think the relevant sense in in uh, virtual media is that a medium is um, a means of doing something or a physical way of conveying some functional purpose or some sort of physical event, so um, things can be instantiated in media, and they can move from one media, one medium, to another. So, uh, for example, storage media, um, which is a you know computational idea, things might move from one given storage medium to another, um, and what's happening there is that the function, the information that's being invested in one medium, might be um, invested in the uh, the second medium. So what what I basically think a medium is, is um, a means of doing something or conveying something or instantiating something. And um, an individual thing can be instantiated in more than one medium, and it might move between um, media. And that brings about the question then, is what is being instantiated in a virtual medium? You know, what Mm -hmm. is it that virtual media do? So to answer that question, we need to look at what virtual means. Yeah. And, and that's another question which really hasn't been answered in any great depth. I think there's a lot of literature that sort of dances around the issue, um, but doesn't address it in a direct way. So Peirce and uh, Deleuze um, addressed this issue, um, but not in a really full way that um, informs um, the, the current discussion. So I, I give an um, analysis of what we might mean by virtual. And if I can remember it now, it's um, the idea... <laughs>
0: that's kind of that's virtual... the crucial bit grant that's the one i really you to remember <laughs> so,
1: uh, take um uh, a virtual war uh, we might think that the cold war is a, yeah. a virtual war and what we mean by that is that it's not an actual war in the sense of um being two forces on the battlefield fighting each other rather it preserves the function of that actual war in a non-customary way so it leaves out some of the things that we find in actual wars such as direct confrontation between our two armies, but instantiates the function of war in a sort of a non-customary mm-hmm. way. And in the case of the Cold War, it was by using proxy forces fighting battles uh, for the main combatants or um, using other means of fighting um, wars or achieving the political aims of wars. So if, if that's an example of um, uh, virtuality, then we might look for other examples you know um, that we have today, such as a virtual store. Uh, instantiates the function of a store but does it in a non-customary way Mm -hmm. so rather than having bricks and mortar what it does is it puts it on a website and it gains certain things by putting the store on a website because you don't have to you know uh, employ um, uh, custom service people and you don't have to pay rent in you know in a a high street and that style of thing Um, but it preserves the function that you really want to achieve by that So virtuality seems like it's a non-customary way of achieving a a, a precedent
0: function. So I think the two examples you just gave are particularly interesting because they do not in any obvious way connect to the kind of common understanding of virtual reality that we might have. And that brings me to two quite interesting points that you made in a book. One is that virtuality does not have to be computational per se. Wars are not necessarily computational. And a second one is that virtuality is not in and of itself connected with fiction. So again, a virtual store does not have to be a fictional in any particular sense. So This, I think, places us at odds with the received idea that virtual reality is a profoundly technological advancement.
1: So I, I think given the way that I analyze virtuality, it turns out that virtual things don't have to be computational things. And in fact, virtuality is much more common in in cultural development than we might think. So it happens when any given function or object uh, finds itself in a different media, is remediated um, in a non-customary way. Mm -hmm. So we find sort of non-computational virtuality. Um, um, Whereas what we probably think we're talking about when we talk about virtual these days is computational um, virtuality, which is like a species of of virtuality. And um, I think the, the, the contribution that virtuality makes to cultural development is it allows um, cultural forms or practices or objects um, to um, exploit the, the common technology of the, the particular time. So we have computers these days, the development of the last 50 years mostly, and um, there are previous practices um, such as commercial practices or social practices Uh, that we can instantiate in this new medium, um, Mm -hmm. computers. And it it, it amounts to a remediation of of those um, uh, practices. I think a good example of a non-computational virtual medium is the telephone. Mm -hmm. Now, we don't typically think of of telephones as being um, a virtual technology, Mm -hmm. but what they essentially do is they allow us to talk to a person from which we're geographically distanced in a non-customary way, you know, um, what's technically going on is that uh, the vibrations from our voice are being transduced into an electrical signal that is put down the uh, the wires and um, and retransduced at the other end into a a voice or at least a sound. And this allows for a, a mode of communication um, or conversation that wasn't previously available. So it's a, the same function, but in a different medium. And I think that if we had the, the word virtual um, around, and it was in common parlance at the time that the telephone was created, that we might be tempted to use it at that, at that point. And so I think this means that we can see that um, previous cultural developments, long past, um, were actually virtualizations or remediations mm-hmm. of um, previous practices or functions. And so um, this is relevant to virtual reality headsets and you know the, the metaverse and. Um, my playing of Resident Evil, um, because we can see that what's being remediated there is uh, our perceptual apparatus, the way that we engage with the world. Mm. So um, naturally, um, when we encounter the world, we do it through our senses, you know, our hearing and our, our vision, uh, principally in terms of um, VR. And what VR does is it attempts to remediate our perceptual access to the world. in a non-customary way um, by using this type of very complex um, technology uh, to allow us to perceive spaces around us. And these have different purposes and different functions. Um, VR is not just used for um, fancy sort of uh, fictional um, occasions like Resident Evil. It also has um, technical and and non-fictive uses as well. So um, it can allow us to uh, teach medical students um, how to perform operations, or it can actually aid in um, real operations by allowing surgeons to see what's going on um, as, they're, as they're operating. Yeah, it can allow uh, sort of uh, factual documentary, as I go into in the book, uh, some examples of that. Uh, so it's not just a, a fictional technology, and I think that's a, another complication that's um, engendered by the, you know, the metaphysical approach to, to
0: VR. Well, I think you get to solve a lot of those problems in a moment because I'm going to ask you to talk a little bit about the art historical approach that you have taken to figuring out some of the perceptual and and representational aspects of and picturing aspects of the virtual reality medium.
1: I think what i wanted to show that there is precedent for uh the intentions of the developers of um VR headsets in in previous sort of technological developments in the arts and yeah as i said the, the intention of um Albert and brunelleschi was to to remediate our experience um i discuss a, um an experiment that brunelleschi um carried out in florence it's quite a famous um experiment i won't go into the details here because it's a little bit complicated but essentially he used a mirror to show that you could compare a picture to the actual thing and to see how they sort of matched up um, geometrically and so Alberti later codified this and he, um, he came up with this thing called the planet elevation method um, and it allowed uh, future artists to actually employ this technical method to produce um, geometrical spaces and, and linear perspective. and I think what they were trying to do basically was to reproduce um, our spatial experience of the world Even though there are lots of problems with this, and this led to a lot of argument in in art history about whether it really does um, remediate our experience of the world. Mm -hmm. Famously, Nelson Goodman, a philosopher in the 20th century, argued that um, picturing isn't a remediation of our experience. It's more iconic or denotative um, Mm -hmm. or or cultural, conventional. But nevertheless, they thought that they were remediating experience. And we can pick out a lot of other examples throughout history of the attempt to remediate um, how our perceptual apparatus actually works when we experience a spatial scene. Mm -hmm. Another good example is um, uh, how da Vinci used shading, um, sort of uh, desaturation and bluer shading of distant features in in paintings like Virgin on the Rocks to give the impression of distance and visual scenes. And we can um, see that that occurs in the natural perception of um, distant scenes also. So they were looking at how um, we actually perceive the world and and try to reproduce that in in paintings. So I think we can follow um, these trends in the development um, of art history and spatial depiction all the way through, um, you know, up until um, the 20th century when it becomes much more fractured, of course, because of abstract art becomes Mm -hmm. a principal concern of artists. But that we might see also VR as taking that back up again um, um, and... You know sort of revivifying the attempt to allow for spatial depiction um and it actually solves many of the problems that we find in linear perspective mm. so the, the classic criticisms of linear pers- perspective are that well um you have to close one eye because it only provides one <laughs> one vantage point yeah your eye has to be perfectly static um it can't move around as it naturally does and that if you um look carefully at at at, um linear perspective um, pictures that use the planet elevation method they actually distort um what we see so at the very edges of the picture um the picture becomes very sort of unnaturally distorted Mm -hmm. and there have also been empirical studies that show that people don't perceive um, pictures produced by that method to be particularly realistic anyway Um, they they prefer um, other ways of projecting space on a pictorial surface
0: Well, it's certainly alluring to think that the Oculus Rift headset has its origins in the 15th century. Um, There are, in fact, a couple of things that you note that have changed quite diametrically in the development of virtual reality of today as a picturing medium. And one of those is the egocentricity that VR offers.
1: I think that um, another trend in uh, the development of art was the position of the viewer in relation to the Hmm. scene. And there are some famous paintings um, in which uh, the painting seems to place the viewer within the picture space somehow um, and it makes reference to them. So the Arnolfini marriage would be a a famous example of of that, I guess, even though it's not in linear perspective, but it does give the impression that the viewer is looking onto the scene. There are a lot of examples of that style of thing, but the the limitation on those is that if the viewer moves before the picture, uh, the scene itself doesn't change geometrically to reflect that movement. Rather, it's, it's static. So um, there's the famous effect of the eyes seeming to follow you uh, when you move around a picture. Mm. Well, if, if the picture really did respond to your movement uh, um, before it, the eyes wouldn't follow you because they would be fixated <laughs> on the space that you yeah. previously occupied. Okay, so that's another limitation on that style of sort of um, spatial depiction. And I think that VR, um, because it takes up again this notion that we might realistically depict space, um, does better in many respects than um, uh, static um, pictures produced by linear perspective, mm-hmm. because now the viewer can move before the scene, apparently. The, the depiction of the scene will change given their um, particular perspective on the scene, and that's enabled by what are a couple of the, um, the key features of um, VR headsets. The key features of um, VR headsets that allow them to um, achieve this sort of egocentric um, mode of viewing is first, um, that picture uh, that you're looking on is not static, but it is able to change given um, the viewpoint uh, from which it's being viewed. And of course this is a development that's allowed by computer graphics and um, the rendering of 3D um, graphics in particular. So there's some detail in the book about how this is achieved through um, polygonal modeling and um, basic um, computer graphics. So um, there's a thing called a virtual camera which you can place um, in relationship to a 3D model, which is made up of um, various polygons and um, the movement of this virtual camera changes the geometry of what's actually um, modeled. And so it gives the impression that there's a perspective moving on um, the pictured content. So that's one aspect of this. The second aspect is that the uh, the viewing uh, position is defined by um, a stereoscopic headset. So there are, um, uh, two virtual cameras in fact and they're slightly displaced um, um, representing each of the eyes of the viewer and so you get a, a slightly different perception um, a, a slightly different perspective on that um, modeled world that you're viewing and this allows for various features of perception that actually in reality do give us the perception of spatial depth of the scene and this is when um, uh, things like uh, da vinci stereopsis or um convergence and accommodation which are natural features of perception which allow us to perceive um, space um, uh, come in and I think the final thing uh, that virtual reality does is it allows us to interact with those objects that are actually Mm. depicted so it can represent um, as a model your hand and your hand reaching out into that modeled space and um, you know interacting with the objects you're finding there and changing them Now it's all a bit complicated that gives a very broad view of what's going on (laughs) and there um there are lots of variations in the technology um that achieves this i think the basic lesson is that what vr headsets are attempting to do is to provide a a sense of egocentric interactive picturing um, that moves beyond the sorts of static pictures that we find in uh um you know museums and so forth
0: so those two properties seem to allow for quite a lot to happen in in virtual reality in Comparison to other picturing media. Um, and you bring up a bunch of examples that range from very familiar, like you know, Microsoft Flight Simulator, or aspects of telemedicine. But one thing that for me was quite telling and very illustrative is this experiment in which a subject was able to catch a ball which they only saw through a virtual reality headset while the ball was actually being thrown at them in reality. Um, And the reason this stuck in my mind, taking us maybe already to the question of what what is real in those situations, you might have seen in the news a couple of weeks ago, there was a news item about uh, one of the multiverse's first sexual harassment complained. Someone complained about having their breast stroked against their will um, upon looking down in the headset.
1: So there's a lot in that particular um
0: (laughs) well let's try anyway.
1: So I talk a little bit more about the uh the ball catching example because that shows something interesting about um, um virtual reality, the potential of it. So in that case, that's Disney research um uh that's going on at the moment and there are various other examples of that style of thing as well. So as you say, um what happens is that the user is situated in a virtual reality environment and aspects of that virtual reality environment are actually derived from their real environment. So a ball um, is tracked and it's uh, thrown at them, and they're able to catch it and um, you know with reasonable efficiency and one thing that we might think that that shows is that um, it's often thought that virtual reality cuts you off from the actual world hmm. that, that, um, one of the the things that's often used to define virtual reality is that it excludes or pushes away your actual um, reality, but I don't think that's the case because um it can be used ways in which it allows you to see reality in Augmented ways, or allows you to achieve things in reality that you might not be able to achieve otherwise. So, in that case, it allows you to catch a ball, which is something we can all do. But there are other potential cases in which it might allow you to do things at a distance. So, we could think about um, uh, virtual prosthetics or virtual prosthetic vision, allowing us to um, manipulate the world at a distance, and a um, you know maybe have a robot proxy out there that um, um, we see through the perspective of, and that. Um, has appendages that we can control and and, and can interact with things and that would be interesting and useful in all sorts of uh, uh, circumstances such as where it's more dangerous obviously to to do things that we wouldn't wouldn't want to do or um, as I suspect uh, one of the the big reasons that this technology is being developed and it has military applications obviously Mm. you know we could pilot drones or um, control robots at a distance um, in a way that wasn't you know, dangerous to our our personal um, self. But um, this brings up another issue in the history of uh, sort of philosophical um, assessment of pictures. Um, Kendall Walton as a philosopher is is reasonably famous and uh, he has this um, claim that photographs of historical things actually allow us to see them. So if you imagine looking at a picture of your grandmother um, who has, you know, passed away um, uh, on the wall, uh, he thinks that when you look at that picture, you, you actually see your grandmother. Mm. And he calls this the um, the idea of photographic transparency. Yeah. So when we look at photographs, we see things through them. And one of the claims I make in the book is that um, virtual reality might actually allow us to see things um, through them. Um, so when we um, use a headset, it's not always that we're um, running from zombies in, in the world of uh, Resident Evil. Sometimes we can actually see the world through that uh, virtual reality headset, and this has applications. But I think, as you mentioned, it also has potentially worrying um, um, features.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, the reason why virtual reality might be useful in a military sense is that it, it uh, allows soldiers to do things that are dangerous in an in actual context, but which would be perfectly safe for them in um, a virtual reality context. But this obviously brings a certain asymmetry um, into military combat. and you, know, you might think it it's, has moral um, um, ramifications. And uh, that one side can be entirely virtual and the other side can be real. And this virtual army can sort of um, have this immoral asymmetry over um, their phone um, events. And I think the example that you bring up as well is um, the worrying things that we might do in, in, in virtual reality if we're at a distance mm-hmm. um, and, you know, we, um, because of our distance from the, the person that we're interacting with, we can do things that um, you know, uh, we wouldn't do if we had an actual connection with each other. So the sexual harassment or you know, molesting or whatever you know, those um, uh, things are, um, you might think that for the, the similar reason to the military case that um, you know, they would become possible in, a, in, in virtual reality. One of the deeper uh, parts of the book is uh, the question of what is being remediated in virtual reality? Um, are the actual objects themselves uh, that we see being remediated, or is it our perceptual access to things that is being remediated? Mm -hmm. And this makes a big difference, I think. Um, So I make the distinction um, uh, when I discuss um, virtual reality and how it allows us to perceive things, that we need to think about the depiction itself and what it is that the depiction depicts. So the intentional object. Um, So when you look at something within a virtual reality headset, often you are just looking or fictionally looking at a fictional thing. So sometimes virtual reality headsets depict zombies and they aren't real. And they don't seem to be the normal moral considerations for killing zombies as there might be for Mm -hmm. killing real things. So you have to be careful if you're going to morally assess interactions or events within virtual realities, whether the intentional object is real or whether it's something that's merely fictional. Um, and I think the, the case of a virtual harassment would be very sort of fraught with those, you know, those issues. Um, they, they're quite difficult to issues to solve. So is, a, is the avatar of a person within a virtual world actually the person that's controlling it? Yeah. Or is it, um, you know, is it a controlled pictorial element? Is it something that they're merely controlling? Mm-hmm. So do we have any sort of strict sense of identity with the things that we control um, in the world? When I look down at my hands in a virtual reality, are they really my hands? And when I shake hands with someone, am I really shaking their hands? Now, these are we, We're straying into metaphysics, which is something I really don't do hugely in the book.
0: Hmm. Well, let's try to stick with her for just one moment, if only to figure out why that's a bad idea. And a couple of things that came to mind as I was reading your arguments in this area where the possibilities of understanding the construction of reality in virtual reality as something that's socially determined. And there are, there's a couple of different ways to think about this. Um, one, you mentioned the difference between the way that photography represents or brings about reality in one particular framing. Um, one might contrast that with, say, a military application in which all sorts of social and ethical issues are coming up. So I, I think I'm
1: not claiming that um, virtuality does not have real cultural um, implications or real social existence, or because I'm claiming basically that virtuality is a fancy kind of picturing. And people have always done things with pictures and there are always cultural standards and um, differentiations between different cultures and how pictures are used and so forth. And there is always a moral overlay in how pictures are used. So obviously I can draw offensive pictures or I can draw a picture of an offensive thing and hand it to someone and thereby do something that's morally improper. Um, I think technically what I'm saying is that we need to be careful about thinking that virtual reality objects that we encounter are Actually, real, or um, that they're remediated objects. Mm. Um, I'm, I'm rather just claiming that virtuality remediates um, perceptual processes, and uh, through picturing. And it's not something I really go into um, too much in the book, but that virtuality um, does have the cultural inflection. um One place in which in the book in which I come quite close to claiming that is in the discussion of virtual documentary, though I really didn't want to get into it because maybe it was too sort of um, comfortably <laughs> on the nose at the moment. Um, There is one example that I I discuss about um, how uh, a virtual documentary might allow you to step into um, the shoes or the situation of someone who's experiencing, you know, segregation, um, you know, United States during the 1960s or 50s. And the idea is in, in virtual documentaries often that they claim that you have this firsthand experience of what it's like to be in that situation. Um, and I think that's really blunt and <laughs> potentially obnoxious. I don't, think, I don't think there is a way that you can have a firsthand experience of what it was like to be um, a person in, in, in that time. And I think it would be obnoxious to claim that you could have that, that, that kind of experience because virtual reality leaves out so much of what it would be like to have that. It's giving you this basic sort of, at the moment, what virtual reality gives you is the ability to see egocentric stereoscopic um, visual spaces and, and audio spaces, but it gives nothing of the, the cultural expectations or the feelings or, um, you know, what it is like to be in that situation at that particular time with a, a cultural background. And, you know, that's one of my doubts about um, uh, full virtual reality, you know, that it could actually um, convince us that we're in some world um, that we're, we're not currently in.
0: Well, I wonder how much this has to do with the hubris of technologists, and that brings me to, to think about Elon Musk and his pipe dream of Neuralink, That is the idea that we could all just be plugged into um, a machine that produces aesthetic experiences, entirely bypassing the body and talking directly to our brains on the neurological level.
1: Oh, the book actually is is quite skeptical i I started out studying vr and i was you know pretty um optimistic about its potential the more and more i read about it and the more and more philosophical literature that i read on it i became more and more skeptical um there is so much literature making so many claims about the potential Mm. of of vr to do all sorts of things that it's hard not to be um sort of cynical about about that but i think there are also technical and theoretical constraints on whether vr could ever achieve this in in the first place there's all the technical stuff you know um vr is is pretty crappy. Let's just put it that way at the moment. Um, there's a field of vision, um, a constrained field of vision you can often see outside of the, um, the VR headset. And I've never once been really confused that I was using um, a VR headset and not you know, sort of looking at reality. Um, you know, potentially these technical uh, problems could be improved and they will be um, eventually. Uh, but there are also more, to, more sort of theoretical problems uh, with VR that it could ever virtualize reality to the full extent. At the moment, VR at most covers two or three or four um, uh, sensory modalities, principally mm-hmm. vision, um, hearing, a uh, little bit of tactile stuff, but I'm sort of sceptical about a lot of that, and sort of movement as well, and a sense of movement, um, also proprioception. And it does that by, you know, uh, moving us around physically to give us the impression that we're re- really moving. Um, dark rides such as uh, Harry Potter's uh, Journey and in, in, uh, Universal Studios does that, that style of thing. But there are a lot more senses than just those um, that would need to be remediated for us to have this full um, virtual experience. Uh, we have internal senses, we have the sense of hunger, um, we have the sense of our heart beating, we have the sense of our stomach being distended. Uh, you know, we have all sorts of senses that are internal to us that it's hard to work out how these would be remediated in any sort of physical way. Now, the obvious response to that is to say that we need to plug in. So um, forego the sensory surfaces themselves and just have some sort of immediate digital input into the brain um, to achieve, uh, uh, you know, this, this, virtualized, this virtualized world. But I think at the moment we just don't know whether that's possible. You know, um, we can't assume that it is possible because mm-hmm. it, it seems, I think, to depend upon the idea that the mind is basically representational. You know, um, virtual reality is, is definitely representational, right? It's giving us representations. But what if the mind just doesn't work like that? What if it's not a representational <laughs> thing? Um, and there's this movement, sort of embodied cognition, which I don't talk too much about in the book. But that would um, seem to me to place sort of constraints on this idea that we could virtualize um, reality in, in that way. There's another problem as well, which I sort of explore in a sort of early way in the book. There is a problem with the idea that traditional pictures remediate um, our experience of reality. And I, I, yeah. uh, um, This has to do with Nelson Goodman's idea that actually pictures are denotative and they're iconic. They don't reproduce reality. What they do is that they're they're sort of a language and we decode them given conventions. So um, we know uh, what a a picture in linear perspective depicts because we understand that convention. It doesn't really resemble reality, but we read into it um, what it's actually um, depicting. Now, virtual reality could be like that as well. Maybe it's iconic and maybe it's a conventional language and it doesn't reproduce reality at all. It just gives us enough that we can understand what it's referring to, what it's representing and depicting. And I think there are some pretty good um, compelling examples that this might be going on in at least some cases of virtual reality, and particularly in tactile feedback. Mm. Um, Tactile feedback at the moment is very rudimentary and it doesn't seem to reproduce in any way Feeling objects, picking up objects, and so forth. What it does is it gives you an icon. Um, You feel a little buzz in your hand Mm -hmm. from the um, the buzzing controller, and you go, Oh, uh, that means that I've encountered something in the world. So it's much more like reading off an experiment, uh, an experience from like um, an icon. And that could even be the case in our visual experience um, as well. Mm -hmm. It it could perfectly well be the case that what seems real to us, the stereoscopic experience of um, uh, a spatial environment, is really much more iconic than we than we realise.
0: Well, I think there's quite some evidence mounting to show that that might indeed be the case. I saw in the news only a few days ago, someone was trying to bring about smell vision for the millionth time in the last 20 or 30 years, as far as I'm aware. Um, we have been able to produce and put 3D television in the home for something like 20 years, but the demand just simply isn't there. So I guess this brings about the question of whether a degree of realism or fidelity in what we accept as virtual reality is in fact the goal of all these technologies.
1: I think that okay, another assumption in the VR literature is that, if this is, relates to what you just said, is that uh, realism is the, the goal, the mm. you know, unavoidable aim um, of VR. And I just don't think that's inherent in, in the technology at all. That there are lots of uses, as there are in normal picturing, that don't even attempt to um, produce realistic um, depiction. And, um, and I, I think uh, we might find ourselves uh, 20 years down the track, if, if VR turns out to be more than a gimmick, of mm-hmm. people exploiting in all sorts of non-realistic ways, I'm achieving all sorts of things which you don't envis- envisage now, which isn't the mere replication of a realistic environment. Um, this connects with, uh, there's a philosopher, Nick Bostrom, who people might be aware of, mm-hmm. who thinks potentially that this is a, a virtual reality that we're currently living in now. And he gives an argument for this, which involves a bit of dubious statistics and some anthropomorphic sort of assumptions about, um, our existence. Um, but one of the assumptions is that, um, any civilization that discovers virtual reality will use it to depict realistic, uh, situations, um, of the past so that we can experience them again. And I think that's just a wild um, assumption uh, that we have no reason to make.
0: By talking about wild assumptions, maybe this is a good moment to think a little bit about arts relationship with VR. Um, I'm thinking from a perspective of the visual arts in which things are both kind of happening and not happening. There is a bunch of artists, including people like John Ruffman, who have been quite popular and and quite successful using some early applications of virtual reality technologies, I guess some of the work has been sort of fetishized for the technical novelty of of what it does but I think we also have a situation in which there is a little bit of lack of definition to the medium and virtual reality as as, as something that artists should address on the same terms that other media might have been processed by them and there's a bigger thing that that has been on my mind lately again from the news, when Mark Zuckerberg announced the launch or the prospect of the metaverse, he made quite plentiful use of quite banal looking examples of, of art. Um, and as the critic Dean Kissick commented on, it seems to me that the technologists don't really understand what the metaverse or the next generation of virtual reality experiences might actually mean for aesthetic applications. And that leads me to wonder about the kind of dance in which artists and technologists try to figure each other out. Yeah,
1: well, I, I'm not an artist and, uh, you know, I, uh,
0: I'm a philosopher of the arts, but
1: that's sort of a bit of a fudge. I really talk about video games and uh, <laughs> and that style of thing. But
0: well, I think video games are completely faux game in this question. So.
1: Well, I don't think we really understand. Um, the nature of performance or the audience performer relationship or what's being um, experienced uh, when you experience a video game or a, a virtual artwork at the moment. Um, and I think that's, we tend to treat it as a way of remediating, you know, you know in a very superficial way, things that have already been achieved in non virtual reality, mm. which is not, what might be uh, that you might be referring to. Um, but I, I think the potential for virtual reality um, is in. The kind of art practices carried out within a virtual reality space, you know, performance and yeah. um, in in the space itself, and how that might connect you to other people or to audiences, or how audiences might react to um, and interact with um, artists within that virtual space, rather than just creating sort of fancy 3D pictures. I think that might be the the real potential for virtual reality art.
0: Mm.
1: Um, but you know, I, I can't imagine what artists will do. But uh, um, VR headsets are so available now. Um, I just, everywhere, I see people buying the new Oculus Quest 2, right? Um, so it, and that just prevalence of this this medium is going to make changes, I'm sure.
0: Well, that's interesting. I haven't actually met anyone who has a headset on the bookshelf, let alone the head, but the maker has certainly seen a lot of interest in remediating certain artistic experiences into, at the very least, televisual platforms.
1: My immediate social circles are probably pretty selective,
0: I guess. So it might be, <laughs> might be
1: biased. But I think, I think it actually is uh, turning the corner a little bit and it's becoming mm. a little less gimmicky. So personally, I recently got the Oculus Quest 2 and it's such a step ahead in comfort. And, you know, the, the problem with early headsets is they were so bulky and they were yeah. tethered to things and um, they were a pain. You could And they produced a lot of, um, um, because of the, the latency in, in the images, they produced a mm. lot of sort of VR sickness. But the Oculus Quest 2 is actually, it's just fantastic in all those regards. And um, I don't mind using it. In fact, I'd, I'd prefer to use it to play some games um, than looking at a 2D screen.
0: Oh, oh, wow, that's the biggest smile you've had during our conversation so far. <laughs> so We're definitely turning around some of the earlier skepticism. Um, and I know it might be a bad idea to speculate, but I'd like to ask you to try to do that anyhow. What is, what is next for VR? I, th- I think there are
1: positive.
0: There is a positive potential in, in VR.
1: Now, I've been trapped at, at the bottom of the world in New Zealand for the last two years, not <laughs> being able to travel overseas or to go to conferences. And the conferences I have attended have been on a screen in front of me mm. um, in Zoom, which is is not ideal for interacting with groups of people. And I think VR could solve a lot of those issues. Um, yeah. Um, if I interacted uh, with, you know. People around me in a, in a VR space. I could see their gestures. I could react to them and respond to them and feel mm-hmm. their presence, co-presence around me. You know, that'd be a positive thing. I think that that technical um, ability um, to place people together in a virtual space could be exploited in lots of interesting uh, um, and you know healthy ways. I think uh, as well. Um, but we'd have to remember, of course, that there are limitations on that. Um, maybe it's not entirely real, and uh, there are dangers as well um, in, in what's going on there i see that um as um you know a positive thing positive development Hmm. um yeah whether that solves any sort of our ecological problems with um flying to conferences overseas because of course there is still a lot of um um, wastage and resources used um, to back up the computational systems that um you know are used in in vr um i'm not sure but i think um it's surely a positive not to, um, having to fly to North America if you want to meet um, your colleagues.
0: I mean, I'd quite like to <laughs> fly to North America <laughs> today. Why not? But I completely understand. And, and is this this is a research topic that you're going to stick with? Stick with? Are you what are you working on now?
1: I'm working on uh, a book on um, our retreat into imaginary worlds, which yeah. is related related to this, but it's also a little bit more political, and um. um you know, why are people retreating into imaginary worlds um, so often, such as board games, or role playing games, mm. or VR video games? And what does that reflect about their experience of how we've managed to set our current world up? And is it a, a good or a bad thing um, that we're spending so much time in um, in an imaginary worlds?
0: Well, please do come back and tell us all about it when it's out. Grant, thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Thank you very much. Great.
0: The Aesthetics of Virtual Reality by Grant Taverner is published by Routledge. I'm Pierre Delancey, and the editor is Marshall Poe. Thank you for listening, and join us next time.